Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Melissa Clark. I'm a food reporter for the New York Times and a cookbook author. And my latest cookbook is called Dinner in French, My Recipes by Way of France. You are the most prolific cookbook writer I've had on the podcast. With more than 40 cookbooks under your belt, and you write for the New York Times food section, in addition to your weekly column called A Good Appetite. This conversation is going to be a two-parter. First, let's chat about your new cookbook, Dinner in French. Then I know we're all desperate to hear some clever ways to use our pantry items while we're at home during the coronavirus quarantine. So you first fell in love with France and French food as a child, thanks to your great aunt Martha and great uncle Jack. Talk a little bit about your annual summer vacations and how that came about. It was a really crazy childhood. Um, so my parents were both psychiatrists, and this was back in the 70s and 80s. And in those days, when you were a psychiatrist, you had the whole month of August off. So if you had any kind of mental issues in August, you were stuck. You were you, know, you had to wait till September. <laughs> um, but it was great for us as a family because we took the month and we would travel. And my parents fell in love with France before uh, we were born, thanks to my great uh, Uncle Jack and my great Aunt Martha, who took them to France when they were graduating from medical school. And so they fell in love with France and they took us, they took my sister and me every single summer. And what we did, and this was really unusual back in the day, was we house exchanged. And now people think, oh, house exchange, Airbnb, they're used to it. But in the, especially this was in the early 80s, there was no internet. So just imagine typing out letters to strangers in France. There was a directory. So you'd find these people who were willing to exchange houses. But that was all. There was just a list of names. And we would send these letters and then we'd wait a few months and we'd get letters back. <laughs> and then we would arrange a telephone call and eventually arrange an exchange. But it was this leap of trust and faith, which I don't think it's it's sound. I mean, it's it, it was strange back then, and even now. I mean, can you imagine? You know, if you were going to exchange houses with someone, you would Google them and you would find out everything you could about them, and you would see aerial pictures of the house. We just went in blind, but despite that, it was amazing. So there we were, our family of four, you know, living in this these French people's houses, and the French would come to our house. They would take care of our cat. We would take care of their vegetable garden or whatever it was. Um, and it was great. It was this really immersive cultural experience every single August. And what we did as a family when we got to France was we cooked. And we did not cook at home in Brooklyn together. We did not have time. My parents were professionals. As psychiatrists, they worked late into the evening. My sister and I were kind of on our own for dinner most of the time. But in France, we ate every meal together and we cooked it together. And that's where I learned how to cook. So to me, cooking, my first memories and my first love of cooking, it all happened in France. So in the cookbook, how do you pair the way you ate growing up in Brooklyn with French cuisine? We, you know, to me, it was the same thing. You know, I didn't have a division of, okay, this is Brooklyn food and this is French food. To me, it was all the same. It was all, these are the flavors of my childhood. And the flavors of my childhood were my grandmother's food. My And when my parents did cook, I grew up in a Jewish household. So my grandmother's food to me is very Ashkenazi Jewish. You know, I remember baked apples and, you know, Shabbos dinner with brisket and uh, latkes and uh, kugel. 
and gefilte fish, you know, and that was all very much part of my childhood, not to mention the Brooklyn flavors that I was having. And Brooklyn was diverse even back then. I mean, Brooklyn is way diverse now, but back in the back in the 80s, we were still going out. We were going out for Chinese food. We're getting dim sum. We were going to Lundy's, which Lundy's was this great old fish seafood shack or not shack restaurant in uh, Sheepshead Bay. And we would get these amazing biscuits and Defara's Pizza, which you know, now is a cult place, but back then it was our, it was one of our local pizzerias and we would go and get this incredible Sicilian grandma pies. So it was this mishmash. And then French food was just part of that. And it's like, oh, and then we would go to France and we would eat crepes. And it was all part of the same thing. So when I develop recipes and think about cooking, I'm using all of those flavors from my childhood to create something. And, um, I'd never really written about it in an organized way until dinner in French, until this cookbook. What made you decide to write this cookbook? I spent most of my life a little bit embarrassed about the French connection in my past, mostly because I am embarrassed to tell you that my French is terrible. Anytime I would tell someone, oh, you spent, you know, I'd say I'd spent August, every August in France, they'd say, oh, you must speak French. And I even spent a, you know, a a semester in college in Paris and I could never master it. You know, I have, I'm not great at languages. I'm also not great at music. I don't have the ear and I study and I study and I study and I speak passable French. I mean, I get around, I'm fine, but I don't, I'm not fluent. And that lack of fluency, especially because my husband is actually fluent in French, which kind of makes it worse, um, (laughs) makes me not want to admit to being as close to French food as I am. Uh, It's a funny thing. But as an adult, finally, I've grown up and I've decided, you know what, this is actually part of me and part of my childhood. And I'm going to get over the fact that I don't speak it very well. Because you know what I realized? I can cook in French. I cannot conjugate but I can give me a French kitchen and any French ingredient and I can cook with it and make it my own. And when I'm cooking and I, I call it cooking in French, you know, I can do it by feel. I can do it by sensory. It's just part of me because I am who I am. I'm also very practical. Whenever I think about cooking in French, I'm also thinking about how to do it a little more easily. I'm not thinking about classic technique. You know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about, we forget that French people make dinner every single night for their families. You know, it's not just fancy restaurants. And that's when I say I cook in French, that's the food I'm cooking. French home cooking through this like Brooklyn lens of even more practicality and making it so, you know, streamlining the dishes, making them very accessible. So I don't have to do a lot of cleanup after all. So I'm always thinking, can I eliminate a pot? Can I do this a little more easily? And then I'm adding different flavors in from Brooklyn, but also just from my life, from my travels. Cooking in French, it's a very broad definition of what I consider this kind of French food to be. It's kind of like your autobiography. Yeah, in a way, it's all the different parts. It really is. Although maybe we're going to leave out the Swedish uh, first husband because he doesn't really factor in. There's no Swedish recipes in here. So aside from that. (laughs) Yeah, we don't need him. We don't need him. No. I think this cookbook, probably more than your others, really highlights your lighthearted exploration of flavors and cuisines. So many cookbooks I find, especially foreign ones, are so serious. Right? Uh, Yeah, it's true. Well, you know, there is the, you know, when you're writing about a foreign, a foreign to you cuisine. So maybe you are, um, writing about someone else's culture, or maybe you, it's your culture and you're trying to present it to people who are not familiar with it. I think there is actually a big weight on your shoulders because you need to do justice, right? And that's important. And that is very, especially right now in this age of, um, learning about, you know, cultural appropriation and food, this is a really important issue. So you want to take culture and people's culture and your own culture very seriously. 
But you kind of get, I kind of get a pass on France because it is something that I learned in my childhood. And it's also something that I'm not trying to be authentic. That's not my goal here. You know, I'm not trying to present French culture. I would never, ever have undertaken this book if I was trying to do that. I'm trying to give you a sense of who I am as a cook. And I am a lighthearted cook, to be honest. I mean, I love to play with ingredients. I love to play with flavors. You know, one thing I write about in this cookbook is I remember when I was a kid, right? So we'd come back to Brooklyn and my parents would make these amazing Julia Child type gourmet dinners. So they were using Julia's recipes and they were very like serious about following the recipe or maybe they'd use Jacques Pepin. But then the next day with the leftovers, I think my dad had made the Coco Vanna. My mom was taking it and she was like slathering it on challah. I think my dad was maybe adding some soy sauce to it. You know, they were just like, they were so free in what they did as cooks. And I really adopted that. So I'm not afraid to play with flavor. I'm not afraid to play with technique. I will take a dish apart and put it back together if I like it better that way. But again, I'm not trying to represent French culture. I'm trying to let other cooks know how I do it. In Dinner in French, I love your introductions to each recipe, especially the one for grated carrot salad with preserved lemon and coriander on page 71. Can you talk a little bit about that? Basically, when you go to Paris and you order a plate of crudités, um, or really anywhere in France, and you get all these different little composed salads. And I ate a ton of crudité when I was a student in Paris um, during college because I was also eating a ton of croque monsieurs and, you know, ham and cheese sandwiches, and I was eating a lot of baguettes, and boy, was I eating those pan au chocolat, right? So I was a little worried about balancing my day. I was always concerned about my weight. I mean, this is just something that as a woman you grew up with, and I took it in. And also, um, members of my family are heavy, so I knew that if I wanted to eat well, I needed to eat carefully. This was just always something on my mind. So when I was a student and I was in college, I would say, all right, if I'm going to eat all of these, this cheese, and oh my God, did I eat the cheese? I'm going to have to have crudité a lot, a lot of vegetables. So I, but I fell in love with it because crudit salads in France are so delicious. There's so much, especially better than the salads I had in the eighties in New York. You know, it, we were still kind of gearing up for as a food culture, especially, you know, in an everyday, you know, fancy restaurants had great salads. But when you were a student and you went to get a salad in a diner in New York, you certainly didn't get the same kind of salad that you got when you were a student and you went to get a plate of crudités in a cafe in Paris. You got grated carrots with this delicious vinaigrette. You got sliced beets. You got potatoes. You got lettuce with a bright mustard dressing. It was all so delicious. So when I got back, I started making this crudité salad, which is what I called it, which was basically grated carrots with a mustardy, yummy dressing. And I put herbs in it like coriander, coriander seeds, and also cilantro. But it was so great. It didn't even feel like I was dieting. It just felt like I'm eating something that I really, really love. And so that recipe, which is very evocative to me of my student days, is in this book. And I absolutely think everybody should make it. And then you should go eat the croque monsieur casserole because that's how I would do it. It's like a little bit of vegetable, a little bit of ham and cheese, and then it all kind of balances out. Speaking of croque monsieur, I made it the other day. It's on page 42. And can you talk a little bit about that recipe? Yeah. So croque monsieurs are, you know, this was the sandwich. I ate so many croque monsieurs um, when I was in Paris. It's a ham and cheese sandwich, but it's toasted. And then they put bechamel on top. So it's like, so bechamel, a white sauce, cheesy white sauce, right on top of your sandwich. And then they broil it and it gets all golden. It's so good. I mean, I'm sorry. Our grilled cheeses are good. I love a grilled cheese any which way, but 
crocus ears might be my favorite. So what I did was I took those flavors and I put them into a casserole. So you make little ham and cheese sandwiches and you line them up in a casserole dish and then you pour bechamel over the whole thing and um, cheese. And uh, yeah, it's really good. Bubbly, hot, cheesy, hammy, the perfect brunch dish. I mean, I think it's perfect for supper too. Just like a, it's, I mean, it's not a light supper, but it's kind of one of those easy, everything goes in the oven casserole suppers. And then all you do is serve it with a big green salad on the side and you've got the best dinner. Glass of Beaujolais wouldn't hurt. And also, I think this is a good recipe for right now. So we can find, you know, we can still find the white sandwich bread around at our bodega. You can still get sliced ham. And I think this is great for our pandemic situation right now. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those pantry staple recipes that we need. Everybody needs to really start thinking about clever ways to use pantry stable items. Um, I'm thinking about that a lot myself. I mean, right now, I'm really lucky. You know, I'm in Brooklyn. You're, I don't know how it is in the West Village. Grocery store lines are long. But we still can get everything, and I, hopefully that'll remain. But at the same time, we don't want to go shopping too often. So you want to use up all these pantry, <laughs> these pantry stables that you've stocked your your kitchen with. So your mother taught you how to get dinner on the table fast and make it taste good with what you had in the house. So this is what we're grappling with right now, as many of us are stuck in the home during the coronavirus pandemic. In your home in Brooklyn, how are you dealing with the idea of potentially cooking three meals a day for weeks with limited access to the outside world? I'm pretty prepared. I did stock my pantry. I wrote about it for the Times and I practiced what I preached. I have a lot of beans and pastas and rice and canned fish. You know, I'm very lucky in that I have a separate freezer in my basement. I know it's extremely lucky. So I've got so meat lucky. in there. I know. I know. It's like if I just had a little freezer, I know you're in the West Village with a small freezer and that's much harder. So I feel like I'm actually ahead of the game a little bit. But at the same time, you know, we're all in the we all have the same limitations on, Okay, well, all right, now what? We've got our pasta and our rice and our tuna. Now, what are we going to do with our pasta and our rice and our tuna? So I think my job going forward is to help people think of creative ways to use everything so that we don't end up getting bored. And, you know, cooking can be a very calming process, especially right now when things are are scary out there. Cooking calms you, at least it, it does for me. And it's also very creative. So I, I'm hoping that people will come out of this more eager to cook, a little less afraid to try something new. And I mean, you know, also you're not cooking for entertaining, which is very different. I think most of us spend a lot of our time cooking for friends and we think we're thinking about what others are going to think of what we're making. But it's just for us. It's just for our family. So I'm hoping that people are going to use this time to experiment, get comfortable cooking things, and I'm going to be there. I'm here to help. So much tuna. So much tuna. So much tuna. I don't think I'm alone when I say I have over 10 cans of tuna right now. How about that tuna dip of yours? I think it's in your dinner cookbook. Yeah. Oh, see, tuna dip is great. So this was my mother used to make this salmon mousse recipe when I was growing up. I think it was a Julia Child recipe. And she would take I think she would use canned salmon, actually, and put it in the blender with mayonnaise. And she'd set it with gelatin and cream. And it was this beautiful thing. My version of that is more almost more like an Italian tonnato sauce. So I take a can of tuna, I put it in the blender with olives and capers and, and yes, some mayonnaise and herbs and garlic. And I make this tuna dip, which if you put it in the fridge, it gets cold and firm and you can spread it on bread like a pate, but you could also use it as a pasta sauce. You could put it on top of rice. It's fantastic. 
if you add a little extra um, oil, so you make it very, very runny, and then you use it as a dip for veggies, it's just so versatile and so flavorful. And it's like when you're getting tired of, you know, tuna casserole and tuna salad sandwiches, this is the dip to make you, you know, it has so much flavor in it. You're like, oh, right. This is why I love tuna. It also has anchovies. Let's say we have a big tub of steel cut oats. What can we do with them? Steel cut oats are great to have, not just for breakfast either. So yes, you can make them for breakfast. I've been baking them lately, which I really like. I wrote about this in the Times recently of baked steel cut oats. So it's pretty much the same as if you do them on the stove, except that you throw them in the oven and then you don't have to worry about them. And you can season the cooking water. You can Well, first of all, you can use milk if you have some, but you can also add um, spices. And I added some almond butter recently to the cooking water. So your general proportions for steel cut oats is one to three. So one cup of oats to three cups of water, and you just bring it to a simmer either on the stove or you add boiling water to a casserole dish, cover it with foil and throw it in the oven for an hour. Either way, but just think about what you can season that water with, different toppings, but also don't forget oats are fantastic savory. So if you think about polenta, right? We love savory polenta. Oats can be used in the exact same way. So try cooking them in broth or maybe with a couple of garlic cloves and a bay leaf, and then use that yummy, savory, you know, kind of mushy starch as you would a bed of polenta and just throw lots of stuff on top of it. It absorbs. It's just like a great like sort of bed for yummy other flavors or like mashed potatoes, you know, same kind of thing. Mushy, comforting, savory, add lots of butter and salt. It's just, it's very, oh, and Parmesan too. Risotto. Think of it like risotto, except it's oats. So we all have tons of pasta on hand. Help, please. I know, right? (laughs) So So, yes, you know, I mean, pasta never gets old. I just, I'm never tired of making pasta. You know, when you think about, I mean, all of those wonderful dishes, you can go to Italy for a month and eat pasta every day and not get tired of it. And you can do the same thing in your kitchen, except you're not, unfortunately, in Italy, which is, I guess, right now good, but in general, bad. (laughs) Think about the simplest Cucina Povera recipes, right? Which is just things that you have in your pantry anyway. Maybe you have a can of anchovies. Maybe you have some breadcrumbs. You know, right now, this is a time to be saving those bread scraps and making breadcrumbs if you don't already. Saute them in garlic with some Parmesan. And that, with some olive oil, is a fantastic pasta topping. I use little bits of leftovers as the base for pasta sauces all the time. You know, those leftover roast veggies, I'll chop up, saute, add some butter, and throw them on top of pasta. Um, You probably have cans of tomatoes. If you love pasta, you should have some plum tomatoes on hand and simmering those into a sauce, of course, is just the most basic elemental thing you can do. If you have access to a sunny windowsill, I would say now is the time to get some basil seeds and start planting. That's and maybe so if you smart. Know, get, maybe you'll have pesto in a month. I mean, you know, this is my neighbor works at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and they unfortunately they closed, which I was hoping I'd be able to walk outside in their gardens, but we can't. However, she did bring me some basil seeds before they closed. So I'm about to embark on a whole exciting uh, little gardening uh, trip here in my Brooklyn spot. <laughs> Let's see if I can grow. I have the brownest thumb. You know, people, it's funny because when people call me up and, you know, my, my friends call me and say, okay, I'm looking at a chicken. What do I do? You know, because I have no idea how to cook. And I get those calls a lot from my good friends. I'm going to do the same to my friends who garden. They're like, all right, I've got the basil seeds. Now what do I do? So I'm very sympathetic if you can't make a chicken. So please be sympathetic and teach me how to grow something. 
Tell us about your sardine and tomato toast recipe on page 135 in Dinner in French. Sardine toasts are my, I mean, they're my go-to dish. We probably eat sardine toast once a week, nor under normal circumstances, not even when we're eating from the pantry, just on a normal week because we love sardines. So this sardine toast recipe in Dinner in French is um, almost Provençal in feeling because it has tomatoes and garlic and basil and sliced onions. But I want to start with the basic to sardine toast for people out there who are listening and they've just got their sardines and their bread. And what do you do, right? So you toast your bread, and this is important to use the best bread you can, crusty, like a baguette or any kind of country bread if you've got it. Toast it until it's crisp and then take a halved garlic clove and rub it all over and the garlic will get in the bread. And then you season the bread with some kind of fat. I think I used olive oil in the cookbook, but you can also use butter. And the fat helps spread the flavor. And then you add a little salt. And if you have a tomato that's decent, you can cut the tomato in half and rub those tomato guts all over that bread, almost like a pan con tomate, like a, um, a Catalan um, bread and tomato dish. That's um, So we're, we're just, we see we're, we're bringing Spain in here. We're bringing France in here. Um, we're bringing Italy just this is a very cross-cultural dish, but you don't even need the tomato. Just you've got your garlic and your fat, your oil or your butter. You lay your sardines down with some thinly sliced onion or scallion or shallot and maybe some herbs if you have it and maybe some sliced tomatoes if you have them. But even if you don't, the, the elements are bread, garlic, fat, so say olive oil, sardines, some kind of thinly sliced onion material, salt and pepper, and another drizzle of olive oil. And it is divine. Eggs. Should we be stocking up on eggs? Yeah, eggs last forever. I mean, not forever, but they'll last a month. They last a really long time. Get a lot of eggs, put them in the fridge. Um, you can also leave them on the counter for about a week. They'll be fine. Really? Whenever we make eggs in our house, we boil them and we start with room temperature eggs. So I always have about half a dozen eggs sitting out in a basket on my counter. And we use those eggs for, you know, softer, hard boiled eggs. And when my fridge is crammed, I will keep a, a carton of eggs out. And again, like I said, they will last for at least a week out of the fridge, especially if you keep them in the carton. So don't worry, don't freak out about eggs. Eggs are not like milk and butter. Even butter lasts a few days out of the fridge. I mean, we in America tend to get really, you know, nervous about perishability. But in these moments when you're actually eating everything you're buying because you're cooking at home, you're going to use the stuff up. So eggs and butter can be out of the fridge. Eggs for a week easily. Butter for a few days. Milk, unfortunately, does have to go in your fridge. So you, unless you get shelf-stable milk, which is another thing that we, sh I've, we should stock up on if we drink milk and we like milk, get some UTH shelf-stable milk. And that will keep on, you know, your pantry for a long time. You love a good sheet pan recipe. Could we do something with chickpeas on a sheet pan? I love a sheet pan recipe. I love chickpeas on a sheet pan. So roasted chickpeas are delicious, a great snack. Toss them with olive oil, salt, and whatever spices you have around. I like to use garam masala, but you can also just use cumin um, or a little bit of cayenne. And then I throw, there are different ways to do it. I like to do it in a hot, hot oven. So I do 425 or 450. And when you start to see them sizzle, it takes like half an hour sometimes, depending on how wet your chickpeas were. Before you even do that, take your chickpeas out of the can, dry them off with a kitchen towel, and then coat them in oil and spices and salt. And blast them in a hot oven. And they're so crispy, you can't stop eating them. I just love them. To that, to that basic thing, if you've got a chicken, chicken parts or a whole chicken, throw it right on top. 
just right on top of that sheet pan full of chickpeas and the chicken fat will season the chickpeas even more and make them even more crunchy and delicious. Chicken and chickpeas is one of my favorite sheet pan meals. I have that a recipe for that in um, my dinner cookbook. And again, they can also be the basis for a vegetable dish. So you can have chickpeas and you can put all kinds of roasted, you know, all kinds of veg for roasting along with them, like sliced carrots and maybe cherry tomatoes. If you have those little non-seasonal cherry tomatoes right now that I know that I have. Just throw them on the sheet pan. They get so much better when they're roasted in spices along with some chickpeas. Potatoes are great there too. So there's a lot you can do. Just think of the chickpeas are the base and then you're going to add either protein or more vegetables. In terms of fresh fruits and vegetables, what are some varieties that keep for a while? So think about root vegetables and bulb vegetables. So, you know, aside from, you know, that you can keep onions and garlic and potatoes in the pantry for months, they keep for months and sweet potatoes. But then think of this, the ones that you might want to keep in the fridge, like radishes keep for a month, for sure. I've kept radishes in my fridge for a long time. Turnips, which turnips, when they're fresh and juicy are delicious raw. I mean, I'd like to slice them into salads. Fennel is another thing that keeps for a long time. Carrots, of course, celery. So stock up on those things, keep them in your fridge. And then if you can't get lettuce, at least you can make a salad from all these juicy, crisp vegetables that you have lying around. So bars are closed in New York City. No more happy hour for us. Do you have a delicious quarantine cocktail idea? You know, we've been making, we're big Campari drinkers, so we've been making Negronis we, that, and Boulevardiers. Um, and the thing about a Negroni and a Boulevardier is it's the same drink with a different um, booze as the, as sort of as the center of it. So you, and it's such an easy drink. I don't really mix cocktails very well because I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit sloppy. I'm not precise. My husband bakes the bread and he mixes the cocktails and he does both of them much better than I do, <laughs> but I can make a Negroni or a Boulevardier and this is how you do it. It's equal parts, which is so great because equal parts, right? And that means for me, I can eyeball it. I can just, I throw, I just put it all into my little rocks glass, equal parts Campari, and then for a Negroni, it's gin. And for a Boulevardier, it's um, whiskey. Like, um, you know, usually we use rye whiskey, but you can use bourbon. And then um, sweet vermouth. Then you just take some orange zest and squeeze the oils into it. You know, you do a, uh, a twist. It's a cocktail word for it. See, I'm bad with cocktails. And um, some ice cubes. And that is it. And it is the perfect drink that even I can make. Now for my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. Aside from this cookbook, what is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? And I can't wait oh, to hear this. I can't, you know, okay. So I can't name a favorite because, you know, I can't have a favorite child, even though I do have a favorite child because I only have one child. But <laughs> um, but I can, if I had two children, I couldn't name a, a favorite. So I can't name a favorite cookbook. But the one I'm reading right now, I'm reading a lot of Jane Grigson. And Jane Grigson is a British author who um, wrote a lot of cookbooks back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And she's fabulous. And her stuff is fresh seasonal food that is really simple in its essence, but that she shows you how to make your own. She shows you how to adapt it. And I just, I love all food writing that is adaptable and open-hearted in that way. You know, I love people who teach you how to make things delicious in the way that you like them. And Jane Grigson absolutely does. So any of her cookbooks, she has a book called English Food, which I love. Um, but any of her books are great. Well, that's what you do for us. I try. I try, darn it. <laughs> Where can we find you on the web and social media? 
I am Instagramming like a fiend these days because I'm trying to share recipe ideas for people who are cooped up. So find me on Instagram primarily at um, Clark Bar. So Clark Bar like the candy, which is not good branding because on Twitter, I'm Melissa Clark. James Beard said food unites us. It brings us together. Thank you for all that you do to bring us together. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks for having me, Susie. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.